0: Podcast one. Okay, are you recording? G'day and welcome along to episode 115 of the Howie Games, part A. For those of you who are saying to yourself, hang on, that's not Howie. Well, you're correct. This is Adam Gilchrist here and for this week I have ambushed the podcast. Now, before we go on, on behalf of Howie, can I please request that those of you that don't currently subscribe to the Howie Games get onto it, please start. And if you already do, spread the word to anyone and everyone and get them to join the many, many people who have downloaded this podcast over 50 million times. You know it, they won't be disappointed. All right, now here's the situation. During the initial COVID lockdown back in March, I, like a lot of people, were listening to a lot of the episodes of the Howie Games. And it dawned on me, that not only is Mark Howard a brilliant interviewer of talented athletes, he has an amazing story of his own, and one that his loyal band of listeners, you guys, would be most interested in. I'm very fortunate to classify Howie as one of my closest mates and a brilliant work colleague. He's as good as anyone around. But I sense that so many people who listen in each week feel they also relate to him his style his infectious personality and you'd love to learn more about him well he was reluctant such is his nature but after a few discussions and learning that there were thousands of emails requesting his story once i found that out i finally sat him down on the other side of the microphone
1: it's full it's down the ground they win the hearts and minds of cricket fans all around the world. Test cricket's heart is beating hard. It's beating true. One of the most incredible sporting performances ever seen on Australian soil. They were down. They were out. And India have risen. And they have held on the Border-Gavaskar trophy in a truly epic test series.
0: Howie talks passionately about his many escapades traveling to exotic locations around the world as a younger man, from chasing the perfect wave in Papua New Guinea to hiding from gorillas in the jungle, the gun carrying kind, whilst tracking down a family of gorillas, the animal kind. He recalls standing on the terraces amongst drug-fuelled football supporters in South America to paying a week's wages for four beers in Monaco, just to impress some ladies. There's a dramatic moment where he thought his life was about to end, balanced out by an emotional reaction when he simply hears his son and daughter's voices, truly reflecting how dearly he values family.
2: So you search and try to find, but you don't know where to go. So many thoughts flood through your mind. you confuse and want to know. Mystery, what is to be? So much more than meets the eye. Listen to me, time is your key. You will find out by and by.
0: Howie has an inspirational philosophy to professional life which continues to fuel a lifelong adventure away from work. So here it is. An amazing story of a man who simply through his curiosity of other people's journeys has allowed us to feel a part of that journey and more so to be inspired. Here is the story of Mark, the guru, Howie Howard.
2: So when you search and then you find and know just where to go and thoughts that once used to cloud your mind you see clearly and now you know mystery what is to be revealed in King Selassie come on children tread with me we want
0: to reach Mount Zion righto Howie I did touch on this at the start of the player profile I've got to say tremendous honour for me to be able to do this and I'm, I'm nervous because I seriously feel like I've got to try to accurately represent the wishes and the interests of your many million subscribers and listeners out there and how Mm -hmm. far widely your podcast has reached uh, and and all credit to you for that. So I'm trying to represent them in doing this, but there has been a huge, as you know, and the people that help you produce this, there's been a lot of interest in learning more about you. It has. And so I know you're the most humble, self-deprecating person that never looks for the limelight ever, so you're going to have to go against the grain a bit here. And how, it is against the grain. Yeah, well how are you feeling about it? Just oh. being on the other side of the mic? I'll
1: be completely honest with you, it's it's not, you, you get to where you are in life by playing a certain way, so this is like you having to go out and be Chris Taverau rather than having Gil <laughs> Chris like it's the opposite of what I would normally do. I'm looking forward to it, but I also, I, no I'm really looking forward to it. The thing that is in my mind a little bit is we've spent eight summers together. Mm. So I was thinking about this this morning. Apart from my family, you probably know the current me as well as anyone, which is reassuring yet also slightly concerning (laughs) because you know what makes me tick so you know what questions to ask. The second thing that I'm a little concerned about is I'm used to it being done a certain way and Mm. I know what works making a good podcast. Now I have to hand that responsibility over to you. So people say to me, oh, sometimes, you know, who hasn't been a good guest on your show? And I always look at it, if the episode's not that good, it's my fault, not the guest's. Mm. So without, me more nervous. <laughs> without putting any extra pressure on your guru, if this episode absolutely stinks it up, it's your fault, not mine. Well,
0: mate, I, 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 thanks for that. Yeah, really <laughs> relaxed. Can we turn the aircon back on now? I'm just starting to beat up here. Well, but, that's uh, how
1: well we know each other because I know you like a cold room to commentate in, and it drives me round the twist because <laughs> I sit there shivering in a big bash game and you like it cold. That's how well we know each other.
0: Yeah, well, but I feel a sense of immense responsibility and pride to be able to take over. Such a strong brand that you have built and created. And congrats. Uh, Thank 2020, you. 2020, yep. the year that has uh, given so much grief to so many people, but number one sports podcast or most downloaded podcast? The number one
1: sports podcast in Australia. In Australia. And you know the funny thing yeah. about that? When we Brilliant. started this show... And we started this show and I was in this very hotel, the Grand Hyatt. Yep. I met you downstairs because you're staying in your sort of flash hotel oh, where I'm on, in the, the lower key Come one. on, mate. <laughs> Tell you what, this is not bad. So the very first episode was released with you, which we can talk yep. about. But the very first episode I recorded was the great Dennis Committee, mm. And I had to meet him in the same reception and he brought me up here and he sat down and away we went, which was four years ago now. And I remember I was having a surf that morning thinking, what am I going to call this show? And I was like, "Well, I probably need my name in it so people can identify it as me." And it was sort of half between the Olympic Games, half between the Hunger Games, and I went the Howie Games. If there's one thing I'd change about the podcast, it's the name. And Dennis really? was like, "Dennis was like, yeah, not sure about the name." <laughs> <laughs> um, but he he was the first guest of what I, I think yeah. I'll be sort of 115. So it's funny to be doing it in the same hotel yeah. um, with the man that launched it as the first episode. And i probably owe you a royalty <laughs> check or two <laughs> along the
0: way. Well, we might have to find out how you do monetize it. I remember you way back saying, "I don't know how you monetize this yeah. stuff," but 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 that probably tells me the intention with which you went into it was, is so genuine, and and you have a you have a desire. Well, I, I wasn't going to go straight to this, but but now that we're yep. we're there about the intentions of, of why the podcast came about and. It wasn't about oh, there's a commercial opportunity there, and no. I don't see that you as that in any facet of life that you you have. And sometimes, listen, sometimes to my wife's frustration, <laughs> yeah, 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 probably. <laughs> but yeah, uh, you know, by the time this comes out, it'll probably have been a, a week or two weeks or three weeks. But when we spoke in a a recent Big Bash game, yep, rain came down.
1: Yep,
0: Usman Khawaja, wonderful talent, wonderful creator. Yep, but a, extraordinary talent and speaks so eloquently, but. Openly and honestly on air to us, doesn't he? And that's such a uh, an asset that mm. we have as broadcasters to do that. Rain came down. What would typically be a time when viewers will flick the channels or walk out of the room to go and grab their cup of tea or their beer or whatever they're doing, you very quickly got the producer to get Usman up and yep. we did that interview with him. And we chatted. I'm guessing, I don't know, it might have been four or five minutes might have been 10 minutes it yeah. felt like longer it just felt so engaging and the response and the feedback has been extraordinary why i bring that up is because i sat there and you drove that interview and a whole number of it. you're 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 calling a game of career you're a host but you're also an executive producer on the run and and that's what fascinates me about you but you asked those questions, and I'd never seen you more engaged in listening to the answer, and it didn't look like your mind's ticking to the next question. It was purely locked into Usman, and that, that shows me that, yes, in TV you want to keep people watching for ratings, and, and that's what all the execs love, but, but you also have a mind of what do the people – if I'm going to keep people here watching me, what do they want to hear? Yeah. And then you go to the next level, and it turns into a real one-on-one personal conversation. Did you – is that – Learned? Have you always
1: been aware of that, or is it? It's just you're just interested. Oh, I'm interested. I'm interested. I think when I started travelling, I met all these amazing people that were just way more interesting than me. So the best way to find out about them in the world was to ask questions. So Aussie is a prime example. Last night, yeah. Aussie's answers I found so from the heart and hit a chord with me that I was at that stage. It could have been a podcast. I was completely yeah. in the moment listening to him. We'll, we'll play some of it here.
0: Are you sure? I'm in control of this podcast, well, I'll right. so I'll little... decide what content goes <laughs> I'll in. I'll but... <laughs> put a little pause in.
1: You've seen some of my great cock-ups on air, so I'm concerned about where you can put in.
0: ah, You're right, we will.
1: With Wuzzy. With he, he just talked about gratitude. Yeah. And- I'm thinking to myself at that stage, imagine the effect this is having on people at home listening to this after a tough 2020 where i have in the maelstrom of a BBL game with you and Huss and mm-hmm. people talking to me left, right and centre. If it's striking a chord with me, I reckon this will be striking a chord with the, yeah. with the audience. So well done to Uzi for being so open and honest and probably giving it all a little bit. Bit of perspective that you know that was the 2nd of January after what's been a really tough year. He just talked about the fact he was grateful that he could just go out for a coffee when a lot of people couldn't.
3: Probably three things I really live by is you know trust um you know as a as a Muslim in God's plan, um, as someone who believes in God, as there's a plan that's got to happen. Um, I try to stay really patient. Uh, It's really hard in this world and everything you do to stay patient and not to want everything now, now, now. Whether that's runs, whether that's wins, whether that's anything in life, I try to stay really patient. And probably the most important thing for me it's it's gratitude. Um, Making sure that when things aren't going well, and even when things aren't going well, I'm really grateful for all the blessings I have. You know, we live in a beautiful country here in Australia. Um, Every day we're blessed. Um, I've got a beautiful wife. I've got a beautiful family. I've got a beautiful little child now. And there's a lot of things in life um, that I can be grateful for, even just the food on the table. I love a coffee, so I'm grateful that I can go out and actually get a coffee every day. Because there's plenty of people out there who can't can't even do that. So um, I try to break it down and try to, you know, really really stay in the moment as much as I can. Because um, whether you're playing cricket or your life, it can be quite difficult to do that. I feel
1: it really engaged with me and and it seemed to with the audience as well, which is cool because a rain delay is normally the audience is turning off and you're showing highlights of the 1983 World Cup final between England and Australia really, aren't you?
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I go back to the point that I think your engagement and the genuineness of it, and and, and be it this podcast or that interview, it's a genuine reason for starting, not with an end result in mind. But you mentioned travel. Mm. And, and, and part of what formulates your mindset and interest in other people is is that travel. And I know it's something that you really value and uh, as life's journey. And we have spent a lot of time sitting around, particularly this year, without darting around all the yeah. all the cities having, having coffees and having lot. breakfast. you had, had a lot of breakfast. But uh, it's a fascinating story. And, and, and through your podcast and interviews, you drop little snippets to people. Oh, yeah, I've been there. I'd, oh, you should go there. So. The, the travel bug, where was that born from and what, what was it that wanted you to sort of just break free and and, and fly the world? We could go into a six-parter about yeah,
1: this. Uh, it's funny. Again, could. people perceive Usman Kawadra as a certain way. Once you are on television, people perceive you as a certain way and in some ways that is me but like you're seen as a cricketer. You are so much more than a cricketer. I'm seen as a sports commentator. I hope there's more to me than that. Yeah. So, so cut a long story short, I grew up in – we moved around a lot as, as kids. I probably went to – I went to a lot of different primary schools. My sister went to like 12 different primary mm. schools or something. We were in the country. I had no interest in knowing what was happening in the world. And, what, what what'd the
0: Eagle do? The dad? Well, he dad was what a, was he?
1: Yeah, the Eagle was an engineer. Mm. Um, a trained engineer, very different to me. Love him to bits, but he's very analytical. He's always planning, which is the opposite to me. Yeah. I like to just sort of let things roll yeah. along a little bit, which caused a lot of friction between us when I was going through school because mm-hmm. my sister was, you know, she got 99.94. She was one of those wow. kids. And I was at cricket training and, you know, not studying basically. Mm. So so she's the Steve Smith in preparation in year 12. Yep. And I'm the Ian Botham who doesn't want to go in the nets <laughs> and that wasn't gelling with my father yeah. <laughs> um, because he thought to succeed you need to be Steve Smith because yeah. that's the prep he'd seen. So, yeah, he, he was an engineer, very analytical man. Um, uh, met my mum who was born in England, came out here as a 10-pound pom, uh, they met each other in Tasmania. He went to do national service. They moved to New South Wales. And, and he worked for one company for basically his whole life, a, a papermaking company, which his father had been in. Dad was keen for me to be an engineer. Mm-hmm. Now, you know me. Can you yeah. imagine me trying to deal with the structure of engineering? No. <laughs> it wouldn't have worked out. But he, when I was about 14, went on his first overseas trip to visit some paper mills in Brazil. Yep. And... I didn't have any interest in the world or people. And he came home and he bought me a Brazilian soccer shirt and he showed me photos of him on a boat on the edge of the Amazon. And I just looked at these photos. I was living in a little place called Tyres, a tiny town outside of Taralgon in Latrobe Valley mm. in Victoria, very small country area, probably pretty limited views of the world. And I looked at these photos of the Amazon and I was like, wow, imagine seeing that. Yeah. Like, imagine. And I don't think I made it. It didn't click to me there that that's what I wanted to do, see the world. Might have got to year 11 or year 12 and I was on a train coming back from a family holiday to Melbourne and I saw these four or five guys and girls that look like they were having the time of their life and they had what were backpacks yeah. beside them on the train. I was like, wow, I wonder what they're doing. And I'm a naturally shy person but I was just fascinated so I actually went up as a 17-year-old and asked them where they were from and they started telling me they were travelling around the world. I was like... How much does that cost? And they're like, oh, you know, we do it on about $15 a day. (laughs) And I was like, how does that even work? And they told me about hostels and the Lonely Planet and this, this group of traveling people that see the world on bugger all money. And at that stage, I was like, right, that's me. Um, I'd seen the photos of Brazil. I'd seen that people could do it like that. I had no idea how to do it, but that was my focus during the whole of uni was to get through uni and the day it finished save enough money at Rebel Sport, which we talked yeah. about in the um the profile. in the profile and hit the road. What was your first what was the first landing point
0: <laughs> on these travels? You know, if you get your old original passport out, what's yeah. got the first stamp on it?
1: Well, I, I was I was gonna go during uni and I was all set to go solo and Funnily enough, there's a travel centre in Croydon that specialises in South America. And I was like, right, well, that's Brazil. So I'll go and talk to this bloke and he's like, oh, man, you're going to have the time of your life. There's going to be girls everywhere. So I'm like, oh, hang on, just, just on, hang on here, Guru. Like, I'm 21. I'm a very sheltered operator. I'd I just like to go and see the Amazon, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, and I was telling a mate about this, Timmy Harris, who came from a tiny country town called Dumbolt North. Uh, he'd never been out of Victoria. I'd never been out of Australia. We got on this plane to Buenos Aires in Argentina. In, it was my dad's birthday. So it was the 3rd of March, 1995, thinking this is the world's greatest laugh here. Yeah. We'll get off. The language will be a bit tricky. Away we go.
0: No return ticket. Just no, we had to see so where we, it
1: goes. We had our airlines, Argentinas uh, Dutch KLM. So it finished flying home in Amsterdam in exactly one year's time. So we had right. a year to get so to 12 Amsterdam. 12 months. Yeah, yeah. We, had, we had a year to get to Amsterdam which didn't quite work out. No. <laughs> so we, we're flying to Buenos Aires and we get off there and we're like, ah, we don't speak any Spanish. I didn't even say si or no. Like, <laughs> I could not say a word of Spanish. And we've just been told, our Grammy from the Croydon Travel Centre had said, "Now <laughs> boys, once he's talking about the girls and whatever else he was into in South America, was be careful at the major airports because the cab drivers, with the greatest respect, can be a bit shifty, so negotiate your fare, right? (laughs) Negotiate your fare so you don't get ripped off. So we're like, right, we know we need pesos, what's the exchange rate? We get off the plane, this shouldn't be too bad, and we go through customs and there's like 150 Spanish-speaking cab drivers that have just seen two blokes with brand-new backpacks (laughs) and brand-new hiking boots on. Like I was 21, I looked probably 14, Timmy was the same, they're like, there's some easy pesos in these two gringos. The gringos. Yeah. See, I like gringo. Come a star. So we get this cab driver and we negotiate hard, 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 and we're like, Timmy, mate, we're smashed. We're the gurus here. Don't worry about this. We got a good price on this trip into Buenos Aires. <laughs> so we jump in, we're pumped with the deal, and we go, we, it's probably from Jorge, as they say, airport, into the centre of Buenos Aires. I don't know, it's half an hour. And you, you got to think, Gil, like, Timmy's never been out of this small country town and yeah. it's just people everywhere and noise. It's like it's a big, big city, all in a foreign language. And we get halfway there and I think, oh. Halfway to the hotel. Halfway to the hotel. And I'm like, Timmy. He's like, mate, what's wrong? I said, oh, mate, we've left our bags. Oh. On the travel bag escalator. <laughs> oh, back so, at the airport. Back at the airport. Just, oh. So we're so focused on getting a good price <laughs> that we left our fricking bags on the travelator. So we had to explain this to old mate Jose in Spanish about, mate, we need to go back to the airport. He's like, ¿cómo? ¿Cómo? Which means, what, like, ¿cómo? ¿Cómo, gringo, Aeroporto? We're like, see, sí, <laughs> see, sí, claro. So we go back to the airport, petrified our bags had been lifted. Yeah. They were there. So then we go back to the same cab driver. So it cost us about four times the average <laughs> price because we were going back and forth. So that was, mate, that was my introduction to overseas travel. But for the first month, it was 95, no one spoke any English at all, mm. even in Buenos Aires. So the first Spanish phrase I learned was tenedor de libre, tenedor de libre, which is all you can eat because we were hitting <laughs> up the all you can eat. But, mate, we, we couldn't get directions. We couldn't go and book a hotel or a hostel or, or get on the the metro without a tremendous amount of effort. So it was quite exhausting to yeah. picked up a bit of the language, but it was. Oh, I was intoxicating. It was freedom. It was. It was so exciting, mate. Because every morning you'd wake up and you just do whatever you wanted.
0: Did you have a list of, of an idea like the Lonely Planet yeah. guides? They were outstanding, weren't they, and still are. But you, yeah, did you have? A bucket list that you were hoping to tick off whilst there, or was it just, as you, just, you say, let it ride?
1: Well, well we generally were going to go to Mexico, <laughs> but we're in Buenos Aires, so we were generally going to head north. Yeah. We went south first, but people often ask me, I'm going to take you as a side now, even they haven't asked me, people often ask me the best sporting event I've ever been to. Hmm. The best, and this set up our whole trip, me and Timmy Harris from Dumbolt North, (laughs) there was, uh, we were watching the telly that night in the hostel and I was like, you know, all of a sudden you're at a table with a German dude and a Greek dude and an Italian girl and a Danish girl and a Spanish bloke and I was just like, wow, there's so much of the world that we didn't know existed. And it came up on um, the TV that the next night was Boca versus River Plate, the two biggest soccer teams in Argentina coming head-to-head, rivals in Buenos Aires. Boca obviously famous for Maradona, so yep. amazing players that come out of River Plate. And they said, right, tomorrow let's sit down in the hostel and watch this. And we're like, yeah, cool, this is the full South American experience. And I remember, Timmy, clearly the next morning we woken up, you know, 19 blokes in your, in your dorm. It's like $8 with your breakfast included. And he's like, mate, we could watch this at home on telly. We should be going to this game. And I'm like, great call. You're right, brother.
0: Great call.
1: And that set up the next two and a half years of my life. Wow. It was like, don't watch it on telly, yeah. go. So we're four days in. We're not speaking any Spanish. I've still got the ticket. We go down to the stadium and it's like, righto, how do we buy a ticket? We managed to buy a ticket, 10 US each, and it started to get real pushy-shubby between the two supporters, right?
0: And that's like 100,000 stadiums, isn't
1: it? I think it's 110. It's like it's it's this concrete cavern, right? Yeah. And just as we're getting ready to go in, we are lined up with all these Argentinian gurus and someone throws off the top. So it's like basically you picture the back of the Great Southern Stand Hmm. onto the concourse below. Someone throws a brick off the back oh, of the Great God. Southern Stand and it lands a metre from Timmy Harris from Dumbulk North. That could have been it. <laughs> oh, and that creates what I could only call a riot yeah. at this point. So there's tear gas canisters going off. There's I've never seen a policeman with a machine gun at this stage. And I'm thinking, do we go to this? And Timmy, the yeah. little guru, he's about three foot tall, and he's like, "Man, we got to push on here, brother. This this is what we came for. This is why we came to this yeah. part of the world to see what happens." So it's like, "Righto." So we line up. The sort of the semi riot calms down, and then they're shouting out, "Socio, socio, socio." And looking back, it was something about members only at this stage because they got too many people in the stadium. Yep. And we're like, "Right, we might not be able to get in here." And again, Timmy, he's like, "Mate." We just got to get in. And at that stage I can only, and I don't say this lightly now, there was just Mm. a human crush of people that just poured through the gates of the stadium, pushed the police out the side, and we're like, well, that's us. So we pour into the stadium, but it got to the point, and I don't say this lightly because this has happened obviously in the UK with horrible crushes, Mm. and we got in this crush, and I I knew the number of people were behind me, and we got to a a dead end, and I couldn't see where we were going to go. And I remember just being... Really constricted anxious. and anxious yeah. thinking, we could bloody get crushed here. And I was terrified. I was terrified. And bloody team's like, push on, Guru, push on. <laughs> and I'll never forget, which is bizarre, he grabbed my hand. Yeah. Like, we're two 21-year-old mates, you know, yeah. macho, you know, boys yeah. don't hold we'll each right. other's hand. He's grabbed my hand and I'm like, righto, we're going to push on. So we got in and I'm sorry for kids that are listening. Um, so I always say this in the podcast, if your kids are listening for this, cut out for, t- for 20 seconds. The, we were in the cheapest of cheap and there was just blokes just taking cocaine all over the place in the ground watching wow. the footy. So the atmosphere, not me and Timmy, and I say that seriously, me, we, the atmosphere was like there's 100,000 people watching this game of football, there's flares going off, yeah. there's there's people on drugs and the home side Bocca scored and it's still my favourite moment in sport. I remember a flare going on the ground And still to this day, I reckon the goalie turned around to look at the flare when old mate put her on the other side of the the trigger. Outstanding home support. But we were that buzzed. And the point of this story, mate, we were that buzzed and we got back to the hostel and the German and the Spaniard and the Danish guru and the Greek, they were sitting around. They'd have uh, 15,000 Fernays, which is the local drink, and they're like, oh, you guys missed the game. You should have watched it on the telly. We were young blokes. We didn't say anything, but Timmy just winked at me. He just winked at me and it was like, that's Mm -hmm. our path. We're not going to be the blokes that sit on the couch and watch this. We're going to be the blokes that get into the jungle or get to the top of the volcano or go to the soccer game Mm. or get tipped out of a raft in the Amazon. If we're going to be here and spend this time, we are going to immerse ourselves to the risk of risk. Because you're 21, so you don't think anything can happen to you. So that's my favourite sporting event, but it's set up the way I would therefore travel. Mate,
0: that's fascinating. You've told me before about some of the experiences. Was it on that particular trip? Because that trip lasted, what, a couple couple of years? A couple of years. Was that where you went chasing gorillas?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it was.
0: Tell us about the gorillas.
1: Well, the gorillas were so. Timmy and I, we we six months in South America, Mexico surfing, bought a combi van, drove across to New York, and then spent time in Europe, the Middle East. So you know, saw the Amazon, saw the Rockies, climbed mountains, went up volcanoes, went down the Nile in Egypt. Yeah. Just really did everything that was to be done, and I was, I was in England, and my. Ticket wasn't far from running out to go back to Amsterdam to fly home. And I was working in a pub called The Office, which was cool because blokes – could ring their wife and then say where you are and then say I'm at the <laughs> office. <laughs> Which was a good good pub as an it experience. They were, it used to fire up on a Friday night. I got maced for the first time in that pub. Maced? Well there was a what blue that spray. Yeah, capsicum spray. Cool. There was a blue and I don't know why I had to get involved, but there was a couple of blokes whacking each other with pool sticks and <laughs> I came out from behind the bar at sixty two kilos and tried to calm the boys down. And one of their girlfriends wanted the fight to go on, so she gave me a fairingum spray in the face with a max with a capsicum spray. Cool. So anyway, sounded but, like you
0: needed your mate Timmy there. Yeah, well, I needed out.
1: Timmy. Well, Timmy had f- <laughs> fallen in love with this beautiful Argentinian girl at this stage, who he eventually married and, and had oh, beautiful kids with.
0: So you're fine solo at this stage yes, of your fine journey. solo.
1: And a bloke came into the pub, and he was telling me he was a travel guide. Yeah. That drove those trucks all around Africa that people would go on. You know, you could go for a week or a month and you just continue the journey. And I I asked him, obviously, what's the best thing you've seen in Africa? He said the mountain gorillas in Uganda. And I was like, right, well, I could go back to Melbourne and look for a job. (laughs) or I could go and see these bloody mountain gorillas. So the mountain gorillas were in Rwanda and Rwanda – Or Uganda, depending on what side of the border they were on. They crossed freely. Obviously, they didn't need a passport. The old gorilla didn't get across the border. (laughs) So it was probably late 96. Rwanda had been through a horrific civil war between the Tutsis and the Hutus to... uh, There's a a movie that people should watch called Hotel Rwanda, Mm. which I found very difficult to watch. But basically, there was ethnic cleansing between the two groups. And it was a horrific war.
0: How much... Were you aware of this history uh, no. prior to your visit? No. Or is this stuff you learned None. sort of once you decided to go None. and then That's hence right. having been there you've... I don't mer- think...
1: Yeah, I, I didn't know this till I entered the country. Right. I knew there'd been a, a serious civil war and unfortunately made a lot of it was conducted at the lowest base level of machetes and things like that. Oh. So it was, um, if people read about it, you'll find it confronting to read about anyway.
0: Are you letting? Are you? Are you sending the old telegram back home to mum and dad going, oh, yeah, I'm nah, just. Nah, I'm nah. still loving my trip and, and I'm <laughs> going to Rwanda.
1: I'd write letters every six weeks, which I still yeah, have, yeah. Um, and tell them everything I'd done, yep. not what was on the next. It, it was
0: an edited version. <laughs> That's
1: right. It was what we'd done, not yeah, what not, we were going to do. Yeah. So I met a guy called Paul. I'd love to meet up with this guy again. He was from West Australia and he was studying to become a doctor. Whether he's a doctor now, I don't know. Mm. I'd I'd spent some wild times in Africa. I you know, I had times where, you know, I I was I was travelling around with my little single tent mm. and you'd camp by yourself in the middle of, you know, I got lost in Africa where your hitchhike could take you to one spot and you thought you're in another spot. So I was pretty as a hardcore accustomed traveller, yep. I knew exactly what I needed to do, how to look after my stuff, how to look after myself.
0: Been so- in any situations where you – really feared for your safety, like genuinely feared for your safety? After. Later on. Not before at this stage. yeah.
1: So we get to the hostel. We go to Kampala, the capital of Uganda, and then we're told, yep, you need to go down to the Rwanda border. That's where the gorillas are. And we get there and we go to the hostel and people are only there to see the mountain gorillas at this stage. And the hostel's like, mate, unlucky because the gorillas in Rwanda at the moment, Rwanda's a war zone coming out of war and everyone and this comes back to Timmy everyone's like oh eh?" and mm-hmm. I'm like man I've spent six months getting here I've got some serious adventures to get to this yeah. point and I said clear to this poor bloke mate there's got to be a way we can see these guerrillas taking Timmy's lead from two years ago let's go to the Rwandan border and see what will happen so we get to the Rwandan border they're like no the border is closed because of what's happening in the country and I'd learned a fair bit about Africa at this stage so in the with the greatest possible respect, is there any instant visa pay, if a visa fee I can pay now to get an instant visa to come into your country?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And nice. uh, the bloke's like, well, <laughs> in fact, there is. Yeah. The instant visa fee is a hundred US dollars for you and a hundred US dollars for your friend. And Paul's looking at me, shaking my head, and I'm going, yes, man, this is what yeah. we're doing. So we hand and we get, we get into Rwanda without a stamp in our passport. From memory, we go to the capital, Kigali. And it was, it was really difficult to see, mate, because there was so many people and so many kids missing limbs. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, it was, you know, the, the country had been ravaged. Um, we we found our way to the town next to the national park you need to see it to go to the gorillas. But there's no tourists there because the tourists aren't allowed in to see yeah. these gorillas. So we meet a guy. In fact, what happened? I was taking a photo of the Rwandan. Flag atop a a, a municipal building Mm -hmm. and an army bloke came over with a big AK-47 in French and I had enough Spanish at this stage to understand some French and he's saying, you can't take a photo of that, you cannot take a photo of that and I'm like, I'm really apologetic. But then he's like, what are you doing here? And I said, oh, we're trying to see the gorillas." He said, come to the army barracks tomorrow morning. So we went to the army barracks the next morning and they say "We, we go on patrols up where the gorillas are to stop the... not G-O-R, G-U-E-R, to stop the the gorillas coming across from the Congo. That's right. So if you want to come with us the next morning, (laughs) you need to meet us here, and it's 200 US for each of you. Now, I wanted to do this with my kids two years ago, and I think it's 3,000 US a person now. Um, It was 200 US at that stage. So we get there the next morning. But, and that, like,
0: but, but that's a that's a pretty big decision. I mean, there's a difference between sitting in the youth hostel yeah. or going to River Plate Stadium yeah. to watch the game, compared to going up into basically a war torn region. Yeah.
1: But you're fearless, mate, because you, you've for the last two years you've looked after yourself in yeah. the most extreme circumstances. You've you've got away from pickpockets that have been trying to. Do a number on you. You've met all these people. You've you've been in situations where you were genuinely fearful and you've got through them. Yeah. So it's like you're going out to bat. You've done it. Yeah. You've done it. So you have confidence in yourself at this point that yeah, you sure. can see a way through it. So we go there the next morning and it was the most, oh, what can you say, apart from the birth of your kids, the most beautiful eight hours of my life. Pure um, nature. Yeah, oh, mate. We, we go up there and they said to us, all right, if any of the gorillas, G-U-E, yep. come, they'll be shooting jump on the ground. If we see the actual gorillas, G-O-R, mm. you can't look them in the eye, jump on the ground. So <laughs> my basic instructions were if you see a gorilla of any form, jump on the ground. It's pretty simple to follow. So we follow these French soldiers up and it's pouring rain. It was a pretty hard hike and me and Paul, we go up and it's we're probably about four hours in and you don't know. You don't know if you're going to see the gorillas. It's mm. not like the zoo where you pay and mm. off you go. So we get up and and then they start to really slow down and just hand signals and they're saying this is the nest where they nested last night and you can see all the grass flattened yeah. down. And, and I'm peeking at this stage and they're like within half an hour we should see the gorillas. It, is it deep, tropical, oh, yeah, jungle, it's, it's jungle, really thick, it's dense? jungle, like yeah. snakes and spiders and mud and what you would picture thick, tropical,
0: yeah.
1: out of control jungle following what they explained to me were, were nature paths of, of animal paths basically. Yep. So then it, it's hard to describe with the right level of um, Adjective. So we get to this clearing and they all just sit down on the ground. I'm like, oh, shit. So I sit down on the ground and this little baby gorilla that's the size of a koala just comes trotting out of the forest like he just trots out and he's all (laughs) fluffy and he's got these big eyes (laughs) and you're like Jesus and then the silverback comes over to see what's going on and you don't you, – mate, you can't understand how big these buggers are. Like, they've got arms like – you know, I've got big arms, Gil, but they're <laughs>
0: – <laughs> and, and, and that was a flex scene
1: too. <laughs> they got serious – like, How far away from them? Well, at this point, the, the silverback is about 15 metres away, right? And he sort of <laughs> grabs the little bloke around the neck and pulls yep. him in. And it's like the movies, like what you see with King Kong. So he's got the little fella under his arm and yep. he just – Goes like that on his chest with one arm and that's the point where you make no eye contact. You So you've got to be submissive and I'm shitting myself and you're just looking at the mud and you can you, I could hear him breathing. So I don't know how oh. close he got and you can hear him tapping his chest and then he's obviously, okay, this is okay. And so he moves off and then the rest of the 14 or 15 troop come out, the mums come out. Yeah. And they said, whatever you do, you cannot approach the gorillas, but the gorillas may approach you. And, mate, I got a couple of photos that Paul took over my shoulder Mm. and me, long hair, soaked, and the gorillas just a metre away from me. And the little ones would come up and, like, almost poke you. Like they they would touch, they'd (laughs) poke you, and then they'd run back off to their mum as if to say, oh, look what I did, look what I did. So we had one hour up there. And it was the most magical one hour of travelling I've ever done before... The kids came because then you see it through their yeah. eyes and things become more magical. So it was – and we went that night and there was when, – when we tried to get back out of the country, we left through a, a different entry point. And I didn't have a stamp and my passport. So that was in the back of my mind the whole time. Is, are we going to get problems when we try and leave? And the bloke was in a really isolated post from memory. This is sort of 25 years ago now. Yeah. so. From what I remember, he said, well, there's not tourists here unless they've got a certain, you know, the the WHO and, yeah. and UNICEF and stuff were in there. And he said, well, you're not you're not with an aid organisation? And I said, oh, mate, the bloke at the border two days ago said the border's now open. And this bloke's like in this way out, outpost. He's like, oh, right, well, no one's told me that. Okay, well, I guess I'll see a few more tourists. And I'm like, well, I guess you probably will, Guru. <laughs> and then we go to back to Uganda. To we went back to the same hostel. And everyone's like, oh, you can't see the gorillas. And again, we didn't sit there holding court. But I just looked at this bloke and said, hmm. "We did it. We did <laughs> it. We did it." So um, I hope those gorillas are okay. Uh, they've yeah. been through a lot up there, and the population is dwindling. I'd love oh. to. I love my kids to see
0: it. We'll, we'll move towards a bit of career stuff. Oh, but I'd, one mate, last I'd rather one last question. Traveling. No, I'd like to. and I think everyone'd like to know a bit of the background of the of your, your, your broadcasting career. But just. The footnote to that that travel component, where was the bit where you feared for your life, if that's indeed the description, because you said it happened later.
1: So I'd hitchhiked down from a place called Bait Bridge in Zimbabwe, and I was going to Joburg, and I'd met a guy, Antony Wildenboer, who lived in um, Durban, who surfed. And I was like, right, yeah, I'm going to go down dirt. and go surfing with him. And I'd been told all the horror stories about Johannesburg, but I was like, we have talked about it before, I'm confident, I know what I'm doing. Yep. I leave my bag in the bus station. I just take my five rand with me because I want to get something to eat. I don't have fancy shoes or a belt or anything on, so I'll just go and get something to eat and come back to the bus station. So it's getting on dusk and I've got whatever I had, rice and chicken, and uh, I'd eaten it just sitting out in the square. And I was walking back to the bus station, it was getting dark, and – this guy jumped out of a doorway, literally jumped out, and there there was, like anywhere in the world, like here in Australia, there was a big drug problem in South Africa at the time. Um, I think they call it something like dugger over there. I'm not exactly sure what it means, but it's a form of drug, a cheap form of drug. Anyway, his eyes are spinning, and he starts saying to me, give me your money, give me your money, bro. I remember him calling me bro, Lewis Hamilton style, bro. I remember it clearly and I'm like, mate, I don't have any money. And then he pulls out a pistol. And it's, it's hard to describe it's surreal. It's a bit like a movie and I wasn't heroic or brave or anything like that. I was calm because it would just overwhelm my senses. Mm. And he said, give me your money. And I'm like, mate, I don't have any money. So this is me, clever pants. I don't have good sneakers on. I don't have a belt on. I've got nothing of value for him because aren't I clever? Because I've traveled through Africa, so I know not to have anything of value on me. Well, a, a message for anyone: always have twenty bucks in your wallet, and that's what I learned that day. Because if I had twenty bucks, I'll be satisfied, mate. Just give me twenty yeah. bucks and away we go. And he's he's screaming at me. He's really worked up. And then he put the pistol to my head, and I don't even I've never held a pistol. Mm. But then there's a noise, which I presume is him cocking the gun. Now I, I don't even know how you do that with a gun. And I can remember clearly, Gilly, him screaming at me for the money and me thinking, calmly, he's gonna kill me because I was stupid enough not to have fifteen bucks in my wallet. And it was none of there was no time for any of these flashbacks and thinking about your family or any of that sort of out there stuff. It was just geez, I'm oh, bloody, I'm gonna die because of how stupid I was. I wasn't even fearful at this stage, because it just it was like it was bang, mate. There was a guy, he's put a gun in you, he's giving you money that it just was so reactive and I just said I looked at him I said I don't have any money I don't have any money D- please don't shoot me please don't shoot me and he looked at me and he he did what they call in the paper he pistol whipped me so they get the base of the gun and <laughs> crack me across the side of the head and off he went and I fell down and then it hit me and then I was shitting myself I was just over you know I was in shock I vomited the chicken and rice everywhere as soon as I saw that I held my hand to my head and so there, was, there, there was and blood. then like you're yeah, lying, lying on the ground lying on the ground with vomit and blood all over myself shaking shaking I, I it probably was with me for about six months in my dreams. Yeah. This whole scenario. I was really, really badly shaken. Really badly shaken. And I went back to the bus terminal and this old African bus conductor came up to me and he asked me what happened. And I told him I was I was uncontrollable at this stage. And he put his arm around me and he took me up to the workers' area where there was a shower. And he said, have a shower. And he got me a towel and some soap. And he said, I'll get you some fresh soap. I remember it clearly in a little packet. Yeah. Just the care and compassion he showed for me. I can never thank him enough, that fella. So I cleaned myself up and I rang mum and dad from the bus you, station. You didn't
0: tell them though, did you?
1: No, no. I rang them reverse charges. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> we yeah. accept a call from Johannesburg and yeah. I didn't tell them. Yeah. Uh, I just I just wanted to hear some connection with home. And I didn't tell them until mm. years later. Mm. Um, so, for the grace of God is the expression, but mm. it was it was my fault because I didn't have the twenty bucks in my pocket.
0: Unbelievable, extraordinary. Mm. Right, I'm sorry to butt in here, but it's about now in the episode where Howie jumps in to promote next week's guest. Now, let me tell you, sports fans, cricket fans, there's no bigger name that has been on this podcast than Brian Charles Lara. Well maybe, there's a few big names, but how he gets all the big names. B.C. Lara, the prince out of Trinidad and Tobago, the only man to get 400 in a single test match innings. He played at the back end of one of the great West Indian eras and then pretty much had to shoulder the burden of carrying that new era forward into the future. He's a man that loves his golf, he loves his cricket and he definitely loves his family. And Coming from the Caribbean. It's Fair to say, he loves a party.
2: Yeah, well, uh, I come from a family of uh, 11, seven boys and four girls. We had Eleven? Our, yeah, I can see the look in your eyes. We had our own cricket. Wow. Yeah, and um, three-bedroom house in a village uh, about 25 minutes outside a city called uh, Cantaro Village, Santa Cruz. And um, I spent uh, most of my early life uh, running around people's properties, stealing oranges, mangoes. <laughs> and doing all these things that little boys do. Um, but it's very special. I mean, if you look at it, you know, I'm in a bedroom with six, six boys. You know, we're having fun. West is playing Australia in Australia, 1976. I mean, all day with our little transistor radio, listening to the game at 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> you know, dad pushes the door and everybody goes into a little bit of a snow. Everybody's a, until. We can hear his radio in his <laughs> listening to the same match. So, I mean, it's great fun just being a young kid in such a big family.
0: So that's Brian Lara. Keep an eye out for him, episode 116, next week on the Howie Games. Let's get back to the guru. You mentioned you went to uni. Yeah. Eventually.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, doing what? Uh, so I went before I travelled. I did a Bachelor of Business in Sports Management at Deakin University, yep. which yeah. I thought would be all, you know, meeting sports people and learning about event management and, and, you know, just having fun and it was economics and it was accounting and it was business law and it was boring. It was so boring and structured and I didn't enjoy it but I made sure I finished it. A year and a half in I was like, I want to give this away and I just want to go travelling and a, a guy from the course, Michael Wallace, I haven't seen you for 20 years. He said to me, mate, you've done a year and a half. You might as well finish it. Yeah. It's was like, yeah. So I struggled my way through, made sure I didn't fail any subjects because that would have been an extra six months at uni, and then then we went travelling after that. So it wasn't a field I wanted to get into. Yeah. I learned that during university. For, for, for the young people out there li- listening, go to university if it suits you, but you can be very careful with this type of advice. Yeah. But only if it suits you. Yeah. Educate yourself as best as you possibly can, but that might not necessarily come from an institution. It might come from your life experiences. It might come from an institution. But I look back on it and think I spent three years there, Mm. like three years from 18 to 21. Mm. That's a big time commitment for something I never pursued. It taught me a way of thinking and it taught me a way of explaining my thoughts on paper and verbally, but no, I'm not sure it was worth my time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So you ended up in the UK?
1: Well, yeah. Timmy got married. So I came home and the Grand Prix was on in Melbourne and I'd applied for all these jobs. That's right, Didn't get any of them. Cut a long story short, I got a a six-week contract at the Australian Grand Prix in event management because I told the event manager that uh, I'd worked at the Calgary Stampede. And he's like, wow, that's impressive for a young bloke. What was the experience like? So I'd been to Calgary. (laughs) (laughs) Stampede wasn't on. Um, John Harnden, the boss was, who went on to build the Adelaide Oval, run the Cricket World Cup, run the Grand Prix. So I lied my ass off um, and he gave me a job. And within two weeks before the race, Timmy rings me from Argentina saying the girl that he'd met when we were travelling, he was getting married within three weeks' time. And I'm like, well, I'm skint." Yeah. Um I can save up some money at this Grand Prix. Calendar's sitting in front of me. Second Grand Prix of the Year is in Sao Paulo in Brazil. The third is in Argentina. I'm like, right. So when it arrives, Mark, I got I got a photo of me driving I think it was Ralph Schumacher in a buggy. With I've got to show you one day. I've got hair halfway down my back. So
0: this is what your, your gig at the yeah. Aussie Grand Prix yeah. was basically just, up, he just go for and, 12 yeah. bucks
1: an hour and just sort of make yeah. the coffee and, you know, just help out where you can. So, you know, I'm driving Ralphie Schumacher around in a buggy. I could have been his first race. It probably was his first race. I got this out. How they gave me a job, I'll never know. And I found the guys that did the TV broadcast. I knew nothing about TV. I'd never considered it, never yep. been in my mind, and – I just pestered them saying, if I can get myself to the next race in Brazil, can you give me a gig and doing something? And they're like, no, 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 no. And I rang them when they got back to England. And I rang this bloke, Nigel Distrator, his name was, and he eventually said, just throw me a bone. If you get yourself to Sao Paulo, you can work on the crew for the two Grand Prix. And he's thinking, hey, you're not going to do it. Mm. So uh, this is what I do. I, I, yeah. I can't get a job. Like all these jobs I applied for, I couldn't get. But what I could do was get myself around the world. Yeah. Book a plane ticket, go and see my man Graham in Croydon. Get my plane ticket, get off in Sao Paulo where I've been. No dramas. Twenty five million. But I can do this. I'm not going to leave me bags at the airport this time. Like I'm, I'm, I'm good now. So don't I, worry about the
0: surge pricing no, on the cash. That's right. Like I,
1: I can speak enough Spanish, even enough Portuguese at this stage in Brazil to be able to get my way around. So I get to this hotel at three in the morning. I have to be there at breakfast at 7am and I'm working with 20 English truck drivers. I'm, I don't know, what am I, 24? None of them are under 35. They're like, who's this kid? What's he doing here? And my job was to rig the track. So which
0: means every, for those that don't every quite-
1: camera is connected by yep. a, basically a wire yep. that goes back to the broadcast studio. So the pictures work. So mate, it's a bloke that loves to travel, doesn't want a real job. All of a sudden I'm out with these pommy blokes in the sun in Interlagos in Brazil <laughs> pulling camera cables around a track for the 90, oh, it's probably the 98 Brazilian Grand Prix I guess. So I'd do it and and I worked a ring off yeah. and then we'd build the TV studio and then they said, right, I had five days off between races, went to Timmy's wedding. He married the beautiful Anna, Yeah. met him back up at Argentina, rigged that Grand Prix and I'm thinking, this is pretty good. And then I went to Columbia for a – I hadn't been to Columbia when I was in South America. They owed me some money so I rang reverse Charges back to the UK. <laughs> they said, the boys said you worked hard. If you can be at Monaco in five days' time, we'll give you a full-time job Ooh. as a rigger. So Flew home, told mum and dad. Dad was filthy. Mum was in tears. He's yeah. like, what about your career? Yeah. Dad, well, I don't really have a career. He's yeah. like, well, that's my point, son. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's my point. Flew to didn't, – didn't have to find accommodation because it was 25 days on, five days off. So, mate, it was really cool. So you, you'd rig the Grand Prix. Yep. And I know how much you love Grand Prix racing.
0: But what was that like? You hadn't been to Monaco before? No, no, that had, must have been fascinating rocking well, you there.
1: I remember the second year I went there, uh, me and uh, Shawnee, one of the other boys, went out for a drink. Monaco is the only place where – it's not Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It's Thursday, Saturday, yeah, Sunday. Yeah, that's to right. let people into the town on Friday. So yep. Thursday night, you could let your hair down. So, you know, the two <laughs> international playboys uh, go out for a drink and we met these two um, uh, local uh, ladies and they're like, well, have got to go to this club. So we go to this club and we're thinking, you know, fantastic. And I bought a pot for each of us, what I would call a pot. It's probably not called a pot in Monaco. <laughs> it wasn't a pot of carton. And I got the bill and I'm trying to convert – Australian dollars into UK pounds into French francs. And I'm thinking, this can't be right.
0: That this decimal like, point's in the wrong spot, isn't it? It's like
1: 320 bucks. <laughs> so anyway, and I, I was getting paid 15,000 pounds a year. And so, I, you know, before tax, I've blown 320 bucks on four beers. And these girls, I don't know, probably like David Coulthard or someone walked in and they had like drunk, two sips of their beer, 80 bucks a pop, and off they went. And dished you. Off they went. <laughs> so we drank their beers. So <laughs> so it was, we were going to all these yeah. amazing places. But, mate, it was it was 25 on, yeah. five days off. You didn't have any time to spend your money, so that would go into a bank account in England, and you got 30 pounds a day per diem. But you had breakfast, lunch at the track. So it was only dinner. I was on my cereal, so that wasn't costing me much. Yeah. So you would, you would have... At the five-day period, you'd have 20 day You'd have 600 quid and I would just stay in the country I was in or go to a different country in Europe and just mm. go to a youth hostel and live it up for five days and yeah. then go back to the track. So you would miss every second actual race. That was your four days, five days off. But at the race, you're you're on race. So say you're in um, Monaco. Yeah. You build the TV village and then my job was what's called a pole man, right? So this is before cameras uh, could just you and me aren't would just beam signals back to the truck. Yeah. You used to have to have a connection cord between the camera, right? And the the a pole, which was like a, a like a a two meter long pole with a little sort of receiver. The microwaves must have fried my fried my brain. Yeah. Anyway, so I like a would,
0: mini satellite yeah, like a sending mini a message back.
1: And my cameraman was Sten Stein, this Danish <laughs> guru, right? Sten Stein. <laughs> and he was quite your artistic operator. But out, we were in the pits. So Shuey would come in for a pit stop and he's the shot that you can see panning and cutting to the tyre change and then off Shuey goes. But they were were refuelling at this stage as well. So you had to have the full uh, gear on so you didn't catch on fire. I saw Eddie Irvine's car catch on fire one day. Anyway, and I'd hold the pole to send the signal back. So we would be a metre from Michael Schumacher's pit stop. And it was, and that at that stage, I reckon it's a lot less now. There's the, the pit lane speed was one twenty then, one twenty clicks. So they were fanging in there. One twenty. So as a pullman, you couldn't, you had to be right next to your man because if he was on one side of the pit stop and you got on the other, your cord would stretch across <laughs> the top of his car. <laughs> <laughs> this is like potential world disaster. Co-hanging exactly. Him. So. I, I did I did that, and my, my my greatest memory of working on the Grand Prix is I upgraded from Sten Stein to Jean-Michel Tibi. <laughs> oh, he was your French my. cameraman. Now, he is exactly <laughs> how he sounds. He is the most gorgeous-looking French man. Like women would just throw roses at Jean-Michel Tibi in the street.
0: <laughs> just for his and name. And we,
1: um, we got to the Hungarian Grand Prix in Budapest at the Hunger Roaring He said, uh, Skippy. Skippy? No, Skippy, we will do something different today. (laughs) We will give the viewers around the world a real thrill. So I'm like, right, Jean-Michel, what are we going to do? So everyone is clearing and Jean-Michel is saying, no, Skippy, we will stay. I'm like, shit, man, this is... uh." So then like the last mechanic goes off, different time, yeah, different time. And he wanders up to 10 metres in front of P1, the pole sitter, and P2. And then they, they were about to go off and do their formation lap when everyone clears away. Mm. So everyone clears away. So they're about to start the formation lap. And we are standing 10 metres in front of P1 and P2. Was, I can't remember. It was probably Schumacher and Hakkinen, right? And then they drive past us to start the formation lap. So Schumi and Hakkinen, for example, are going past at 70 clicks. But old mate Mikasalo, who's on <laughs> P22, he's coming from 200 metres back. He's roaring past us, right? And all I can remember hearing is the director say, get off that track, get off that track, get off that track, Jean-Michel. <laughs> and the 22 and 23, they're in yeah. third gear by yeah. the time they get past us. I couldn't see. I remember feeling the track freaking vibrate. Like it was vibrating up and down. My greatest experience in Formula 1, Jean-Michel got carpeted for four ages. <laughs> he just said, back to Paris for you, Jean-Michel. You got a four. In, the fall in. And, and they called me and I'm like, I'm doing, I'm doing what I'm told. Yeah. Okay, Skippy. Just the wingman, aren't you, you? Okay, Skippy. You're okay. Back to pulling camera cables for you.
0: My God. So,
1: oh, well, that's my introduction to world sport as that, a 24-year-old. How would you get from <laughs> holding
0: the pole, back, <laughs> holding the pole, to getting a, an actual microphone in the hand rather than the pole?
1: So I'll cut it short for you. So we used to do 18, 19 races a season, and after the first season. I'd seen what else was involved and I thought this is actually really fun, Mm. which is a great lesson moving forward. Do something that's fun for you. Do something that's fun, not what you think you should be doing or what you think you'll make money doing. You'll be successful at the things you enjoy is is the way I look at it. Perfect. And I'm going to jump
0: in here quickly because I reckon this relates to what you're about to say and probably relates to how your career unfolded from that point. Talking once to your lovely wife, Erica, she mentioned to me about your – when it comes to your profession and job, you've got a philosophy. Say yes, work out the details later.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: It's a great philosophy.
1: Well, you get asked to do a million things at work. Your boss never wants to hear no or I can't do it or how do I do it. The boss, the boss has got a million things on his plate. You're the smallest of his issues. So don't become an issue for him. Just say yes yep. and then figure it out because someone's done it. So go and ask someone that knows how to do it. So uh, I was like, well, I can't, I, I, even I was clever enough to realise as much fun as it was, there wasn't a career in pulling camera cables. Hmm. But this sports TV thing yep. just looked pretty fun. Like I saw what those, we'd build the village and I'd stick all these monitors in and put the roof on and wire it up and then these people would sit in front of it and take Formula One to the world. I was like, hmm. So there's a guy called Miladin Djurgovic who is Croatian and I said to him I'd love to move into the television production field and I bailed him up at the, it was the Japanese Grand Prix. I was doing it with a good mate of yours, Luca Gillian, who mm-hmm. ended up, uh, Lukey Sparrow quitting the Formula One tour and following 200-plus cricket test matches. Yep. And I remember going up to Mladen and there was a real thing in England. England, I think it's changing, but it's a real class society and it was like you, you couldn't really move. It's not like Australia. Well, the Australia I grew up in, Australia, is changing. You couldn't be seen to be moving from a physical worker to... Someone in television production, you were a rigger and that's what you did. You used your body for work, you physically used your body. And he said, Oh, you know, you don't have any training, blah, 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 blah. And when I said I'd probably waste my time at university, I said, And, and this is not a reflection on me or Muladin, this is a reflection on UK society at the time. And I haven't spent enough time there recently to know how much it's changed. Mm but they hold a tremendous weight in a university education probably more than we do here. So let's spin it as a positive that they hold a weight in education. Yeah. I said, oh, I've been to university. I've got a degree. And he said, what? I said, oh, I've got a Bachelor of Degree in Business in Sports Management. And he's like, oh, okay. And he rang me. I came home for the summer. I actually didn't come home. I went surfing in Indo. But anyway, he, he rang me and he said, okay, we'll give you an opportunity to work in television production. And I, I so that's what I did. And, mate, It was the perfect grounding because for the first three months when we weren't at a race, I would have to sit there and log every single camera tape that the international broadcasters had shot. So there'd be 50 tapes, 10 from the Austrians and 8 from the Italians. So I'd go into the TV compound and it was a great trip around the world. It was like, ah, Skippy, you need our tapes. And the Italians would literally give you pasta and the Austrians would want to give you coffee and (laughs) the Germans would give you bugger all and the (laughs) Spanish would give you paella and you'd collect all their tapes and then you had to go back to base at Biggin Hill, which was an airport. So I was living in England. I had a place to stay and log every single shot. So it'll be MSC, Michael Schumacher, tight, wheel turn. Next shot, MSC, exit pit, mate. It wow. took hours. And then you had to rate them zero to five stars. And then you'd look at what the editors were cutting in the edit suites to make the promos mm-hmm. or the openers, and you soon realised what they needed. So they didn't just need Shui sitting in the pits, MSC wide. Yeah. They needed MSC turning hand violently left as he exits the pits because it was colour and it was movement. So it was your first introduction into what makes good pictures on television. So I did that and then I started being a graphics person at a race, which was like when Schumacher come up, you'd have, right, shift F9, there's the Michael Schumacher graphic, bang. And then he was pole, so it'd be shift F11 was pole, bang, so that would come up on the screen. So that was my first gig. Then I moved into – because – it was so many hours away, and they were pretty hardcore. They were pretty hard to work for at the time. It was working for Bernie Eccleston. Mm. Not that me and Bernie were sort of hanging out at no, a coffee discussing no. <laughs> my career, but so many people quit, mate. So right. I, I didn't know at the time and to, to make this progression in Australia would have taken me 20 years. Right, okay, but, but it was then, fast track 20 somewhat. months, mate. It was like, yeah. right, you've done a month of graphics. Now there's a bloke in the replay department that's pulled out. So you, all of a sudden you're rolling in replays and you, you're beginning to understand how that works. And then the assistant directors pulled out. Right, we need an assistant director. Can anyone do it? And everyone mm. goes, oh, shit. And I'll be, yeah, I can do it. This is what we were talking about before. Yeah, yeah I, I can do that. Yeah. And you ring the old assistant director and say, bloody hell, mate, what do I do here? <laughs> and every new race was like facing Dale Steyn, as Huss would say, on a green top in Johannesburg. So you were always out of your comfort zone, always out of your comfort zone. And then the director, <laughs> the director of the onboard cameras, he quit, right? So they need a director for the onboard cameras. So a real director directs cameras, you know, um Mario's Nathan Cameron tight chewy left front tire because he's yep. talked about having a flat spot. So you're directing him when the camera comes in to be tight on that flat spot and then tire change, but you you're not directing onboard cameras because they it's just a piece of technology in a, on a car. So at that stage mate, now there's every car, there was four onboard cameras, right? Mm. And the world feed could only ever see one. So I, – and I remember it clearly. It was your job to look at the four onboard cameras. So you'd have Schumacher, Hakkinen, Coulthard and a Lacey. So you're, in a, you're in a four. truck and yeah. there's, there's four screens in front there's
0: of you. There's four screens and in you're front you're of you. you're constantly monitoring those. So you've
1: got those four screens and you've got your output, right, yeah. of what you're sending out to the world. So you'd have Schumacher up, right, and then the world could cut into their pictures the shot of Michael Schumacher on board. So the whole world sees it, right? Yeah. So this is fun. I'm getting to press buttons. Yeah. At one stage halfway through the season, we got a reverse camera for the f- first time. So you'd cut up the reverse camera and the Italian director would love it. And then the German director would say, we want to see more Schumacher. And the French director would say, why aren't you showing me more Lacey? And like this is all in different languages. It was like, this is good. This is good. But to change cameras to go from the four select to the on-air camera that you're offering to the world, you had to – technically it had to be cut to bars first, So you, the test pattern. Right. Oh, right. It had to be cut to the test pattern first before he could switch from Schumacher on air to Hakkinen on air. <laughs> so, you know it's coming. I'm having the great, I've done about three races like you know I'm a world class director. I'll be directing Formula 1 in no time. Well, it's the Tang Grand Prix at Monza. They're very very passionate about your man in the Ferrari Schumacher. He's dominating at this stage. So, they're they're on Schumacher, right? So, so Schumacher is being sent out to the whole world. Uh, how, how many people are watching Formula 1? I don't know. They say a billion. Now, instead of checking on the World Freed preview monitor, which I should have done to check mm. Schumacher was going out to air, I thought, man, I've had enough of Schuie. A Lacey's making a move through. So all of a sudden <laughs> I send out bars to get from Schumacher to a Lacey, but I don't realise the world is on my cut at that time. So I send bars <laughs> to,
2: to the, the world.
0: whole world. <laughs> so on everyone's TV screen at home just that is watching for me test one just up. a
1: test pattern and <laughs> in my ears I just hear Italian spewing in my ears with a bloke going off his head. I got hauled into the office. At this stage we had our Bernie had his own plane yeah. to fly because it was 200 of us and so the trip back from Italy would be on the plane no hosties, no food, no nothing. It was like you look after yourself. But they would show in the movie that everyone could see the race cut, right? Oh. <laughs> so all the boys are sitting there and they all know what's coming. I'm sitting there going, oh, no, no, no. Shoei's gone. And then the custard bars and the whole plane is going,
0: Skippy! Just Skippy! What have
1: you
2: done?
1: <laughs> so like, we got into the directing side of things and then um, – the bloke that did the interviews for the end-of-season video. So every year, the 20, um, the 1997 Formula One season, there was a VHS cassette made or right, then okay. a DVD. Yeah. And you'd have all the highlights. And so, she, you know, Villeneuve, that famous race in Jareth, crashed into Schumacher. Someone has to go and interview at the end of the race Villeneuve on a camera tape and Schumacher and ask them, what's your side of the incident so they can cut it into the video. Yep. And the bloke quit. Again, the boss is like, All right boys, yes, we need someone to Work do the interview. So I'm like, this is yeah. me. This is me. So he quit over the off season. So my first experience interviewing anyone was at the launch of the Ferrari Formula One car in we flew to Italy to uh, what is it, Fiorano to the test track? Hey, I want you to hold there. Stop. So you're gonna
0: tell us a bit about your the ninety seven, the launch of yes. the car. Yep. But just so you've you've let us know that you're uh, what you're you you're about to start in really your first time, you said your first time you interviewed a driver. Yes. So you're about to kickstart yes. your career that you're in now yes. and, and and is such a significant part of your life. But we're just going uh, to got? pause there because I want to know there's a, a very important question just to give us it backtracks a little bit, okay. but you can just tell us an answer to this one.
1: Hey, Daddles, Big Penguin here. My friends. You have the best job in the world, but I think you have the second best. Playing cricket for Australia <laughs> would be the best. But what I want to know is when you were young, like my age, what did you want to be when you grew up?
0: <laughs> well, there you go, mate. You 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 know, they are a, a staple diet of the Howie Games, aren't they? So it'd be remiss not to have a, a question from the pickle and the penguin. So there's the penguins version. So just before you start launching your, your current career. Yep. What were you thinking when you were his age?
1: Um, he's got me emotional. <laughs> Rightly so too. It's always at the press conference when people talk about their kids, they get emotional, isn't it?
0: Well, yeah. Um, okay,
1: okay Pengi. Um, I love you, buddy, and I miss you. I'll see you in a couple of days. We'll be back down the nets again. <laughs> <laughs> the job I wanted to do was my Grandpa Eagle and Genie Pop lived away with me. So our grandparents, mate, my grandpa and my nana and my pop and my grandma lived in Tasmania. So we would fly down every second year and have Christmas in Tasmania, mate. And the job I wanted, we would get to the airport and I would see the blokes and girls that would drive the little trolleys around the airport apron, delivering the bags to the airplane (laughs) And I saw they had drive all sorts of different little vehicles and I thought that is what I want to do. I, <laughs> I want to be one of those gurus that drives the little trolley from wherever they come from with the bags loaded up or maybe even the TAA man that drove the different car that would July, uh, deliver the food to the plane. No, Baggage handler. I just wanted to be <laughs> the guy driving around at the airport, mate. So it's probably worked out better this way, but I still look at those people and think, yeah, that'd be pretty cool. So, yeah, mate, that's what I wanted to do very and nice that's what I wanted to Very
0: do. nice, and nice to see your reaction when you uh,
2: hear the well, young fella's voice there. yeah
1: you know you miss them when you're away and they grow up so quickly mate he turned nine the other day and um i still remember when he was buddy in my arms when he was just born so mm. anyway so we get to this big launch don't and rush it yeah because, rush it. Uh, because i nice. was because <laughs> i work for um bernie I have to ask the first freaking question, right? And it's the world's media. Like this is, a, this is the launch of Ferrari. Yeah. There was a one-on-one with Eddie Irvine, but Shuey was Shuey, so he just took questions from the floor. So I stand up, and the bloke says, "Okay, it's the representative for, from FOM. At that stage, it would have been Formula One management. He has the first two questions. Yeah." I'm like, right, this is me big break guru. This is where I'm gonna I've pulled the cables, I've done the, the graphics, po- the pole I've done the a re- Distant the pole. memory. I'm gonna be like the new Murray Walker here, yeah. right? A Martin Brundle type setup. So I asked my first question, and Shui, in his haughty way, says, I'm sorry, I don't understand your accent. I can't do a German accent, so I won't yeah. do yours. I'm like, right, Ooh. that's sort of flattened me a bit. And everyone's sort of, you know, there's that nervous sort of twittering in the room. Like, it's Chewy. He's he's Lewis of the time. Yeah. And everyone now, they're looking at me and I'm getting redder and redder. And like, I can't even remember what the question was. It was a name. So I thought, well, my best bet is just to roll it out a second time, same question, slower. Yeah. So it would have been something along the lines of Michael – you must be so excited about the season coming up, like making a statement rather than answering a question, which does my head in now when I listen to people. Yeah. And he has said, I'm sorry, I still don't understand oh. your question. And old mate says, that is the end of the question from the representative <laughs> for And I'm done. Two
0: questions. I'm
1: done. <laughs> I'm out. I sit down and I'm thinking, Jesus. So my only chance... So we're, you know, we're three for ten in the power play. Yeah. My only chance is to bring something startling to the table with Eddie Irvine. So I can go back to the boss and say, yeah. we can use other people's questions for Shuey, but we've got some gold here with Eddie Irvine. Eddie Irvine, with a really strong Irish accent, he dropped the F-bomb oh. every third word. F and Shuey this and F and that, and he's an F and idiot, and he's a F and flog, and it's just like, he just unloads. And he gets up and he says, Is that enough for you? And I'm like, "Ah, uh, yes, Mr. Irvine, that'll do. Like, <laughs> well, mate, I'm 24, 25. Yeah. So we got nothing. <laughs> so that was pretty short-lived. But what did happen, mate? They they signed up. So I wasn't getting anywhere there, but I, I started directing parts, not the whole race, but I started directing various parts of the 4-in-1 coverage and I loved it. But I, I really loved the starting it. Chat with these people yeah. because throughout the whole season I would. I'd talk to them just on the tape to make the video and I was like, this is the funnest part of what I've done out of the cameras and the graphics and the poll and yeah. the directing. and the, This is the funnest part I've done. So Bernie signed the World Rally Championship and the great late Colin McRae was mm. the main man at that stage. So they said, righto, you can have a crack at being for the year our World Rally Championship reporter. Now, mate, I didn't know anything about World Rally, but ask the boat that's done it. Of course Mm. I can do that. But the the Mladen said from a bloke called Eddie Baker, who now lives in Adelaide, his accent is too Australian. We need a more English neutral accent. And Mladen says to me, can you do that? Of course I can. (laughs) Now, I've got a pretty strong Australian accent. So I was living in this little village in Farningham in England, Kent, beautiful sort of the Garden of England, and I would drive along the M25, my little Ford Fiesta, once a week (laughs) in traffic, and I would have to go to this lady who was an acting voice coach. The boss, which was good of him, said he'd pay for it. Right. And this is without a word of a lie. I'd go in, I'd say, how's your day? And And she would say, literally, Nicole is working, and I'm like, Nicole, Nicole Kidman is working on this accent for film. Oh. And I'm really? just prepping her. And then there's me. And she's like, what type mm-hmm. of accent are you after? <laughs> and I'm like, okay, just your sort of neutral English London style setup. Right, right? And she's <laughs> yeah. like, righto. She said, how long have we got? Because this normally takes about for the untrained two years. I said, well, we got oh. three weeks yep. and we got three sessions. <laughs> she says, righto, I don't think you're a chance, but what? I said, I'll give it a go. So... I'd have my little tape recorder and she would tape me through the freaking vowels, mate, and I would go home and have to practice them, right? And I, I can't do it now, but it was a well, much. Oh, was I was about much, to ask you to it just was, give us
0: a little, little
1: taste of it. Well, I couldn't do it. That's the point <laughs> of the story, Girl. but it was a much more rounded way of speaking and you had to get your mouth a lot more open and open your lips. So it's a structural yeah, thing as structural, much, physical thing as a physical, much as the
0: actual noise. F-
1: physical, She and she's that will make you much more rounded when you approach these carboys, she'd call them, these carboys. Right. And so you had to be in character. As soon as you walked in there like yep. an actor, I couldn't say g'day. She's like, you cannot say g'day. No. You need to say hello. Yeah. So I'd say, hello. And I was like, <laughs> this just <laughs> sounds shit <laughs> out, right? And I don't know anything at this stage about structuring an interview or how to speak to someone. Yeah. And then I've got to do it in a freaking different accent. So we get to the first rally, the rally in Sweden. It's minus 25. It's February. It's freezing, freezing cold. And as an aside, we finished the first trial day and I'll never forget this, and I was that cold. And I had a shower and then jumped out of the shower and walked into the main room of the hotel, and there's this huge roar from outside. What I didn't realise is next to the hotel, part of the hotel, there's this massive Swedish nightclub. And there's like 300 gurus lined up to get into the nightclub <laughs> right outside my window. And I'm starkers. So as there's not much to see, Gil. And I walked out there. Hey! Like, so well, the
0: Monty Python. Correct. Video, <laughs> so the
1: first interview is with Colin McRae. Yeah. He wins the first stage, right? It's it's freaking freezing. You're rugged up in all this gear. You're at the stage. You're shivering. Up Colin rolls. He doesn't get out of his car. He drove a Ford Focus. I was no. in the background. I'm like, hello, Colin. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, this is
3: disastrous.
1: <laughs> anyway, so hey, tell me about the stage, Colin. I wish, mate, I wish that camera tape existed. <laughs> so we do the interview with Colin. And then the runner gets in a car and drives it back to base, right? And they take in the edit suite. Yeah. And I, he doesn't call me directly Eddie Baker. He calls the producer and says along the lines of that was so, so bad. He's never able to do this at that company here for us again. <laughs> it's like- well, like you made me do it in a different accent. Like give a bloke a crack. So and my it was as flattest as I've ever been at work. I've I've had some situations at work where I really stuffed up, and it got a lot of flack for it. But um, you can deal with that. But this so was, they didn't use it. No, no, they didn't use it, and they sent out another guy to do it. And I had to sit there for the next three days of the Swedish Rally, basically oh. lumping around a camera tripod in the snow. So I was back to being the camera assistant. I was back pulling cables again. Yeah, and I, and. And it wasn't done in England. You didn't you didn't have these discussions with your with your boss. But I was like, well, I've got to have to go and ask him about it. Yeah. So I I booked an appointment with Eddie, and I went in. And he's a really gruff bloke. He worked. He was he was Bernie's right-hand man right hand man, and he wasn't gruff with me. He was like, listen, this is just not going to work out. But he said to me, if Bernie ever takes over the World Surfing Tour then you're our man and I'll give you another <laughs> opportunity. But as far as Formula One <laughs> and Rally goes. You shouldn't hold into the surf tour. Yeah. Well, I was pretty long here at this stage. I was Australian. I have, yeah. as far the Broad
0: shorts and the thongs might uh, have been a way too.
1: As far as F1 and Rally go, you are not our man. And it did flatten me. It did yeah. flatten me because for the first time I saw this job that was probably better than the baggage handler at Melbourne Airport. Like yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was a bloody good gig.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah and that, to
1: me which I've learnt since no is not necessarily no, and your first roadblock, your first duck in Test cricket isn't the end of your Test career. Yeah. But at the time, yeah. I'm sure when you walk off, you think oh, I'm cooked here. It could be the end. There could be the end. Yeah. I walked off thinking this is the end. So I, I ended up getting through the season as a director and then I, I realised that I wasn't going to be able to progress down a path that I, I didn't know anything about a year before, but all of a sudden seemed quite exciting to me.
0: Yeah. Well, you come back. Here. For the Sydney Olympics. That's what brought you back? Yeah,
1: Sydney Olympics, where right. I worked as an assistant director on the volleyball with Dave Barham, who we worked right. with at Channel 10. Right, right. He was the executive producer, and he, we introduced ourselves. He said, do you know anything about volleyball? I said, no, not a thing. And he said, I said, what about you? He said, no, nothing. But we had these <laughs> American guys around us, and I just realized I had to pick it up. So within three days, we were directing the Olympics.
0: Did that all go smoothly it went with the outstandingly, volleyball?
1: Outstandingly, yeah. It went really well. And the so best not the beach volleyball, no. not the
0: stuff down on Bondi with no, no, uh, Kerry no. Potharse and Cookie. No, no, this and is next cookies. to the
1: basketball at um, Sydney Olympic Park. Yeah, right. And, mate, the best thing about it was we did a game at t- – I had mates that were working from 6am till midnight every night on the basketball. We had to do a game at 10, a game at midday, yeah, and we were off by one thirty. and I had a volleyball pass, which I manufactured into a Access All Areas pass <laughs> with various <the fairest>, devious <laughs> means, and saw every – Every major event at that Sydney Olympics, yeah. whether it was Freeman or Thorpe or Hackett or you Tatiana, night, I, saw, I saw the Dream Team. Yeah, oh, it was there at Freeman. I was three metres from the line next to all the massive press photographers. I've got a photo at home with Freeman's leg disappearing out of frame on my little camera that she'd already gone through the frame when I took the photo. So it was a great Olympics. But Dave, after that, saw that I I could direct my way around and I was keen and he offered me a job. Did 10 have the footy then or get it soon after? No, no. So he was at seven, mate, and and he said, listen, we need someone to work on sort of a production assistant on the football. Yeah. And at this stage I'd sent a few tapes of off-Broadway interviews with some Formula One drivers to a bloke called Murray Lomax, and he said, oh, we might be able to get you a gig on Channel 10 on the – V8 supercar coverage. Right. And I'm like, how good is this? I'm going to choose between footy or V8 supercars. And uh, and then Murray rang me and said, oh, mate, unfortunately, we've gone for a different direction. Darryl Beattie oh, yeah. has decided that this is a gig for him, who I went on to host MotoGP yeah. with for five years, so we're going to give that job to Daryl. I'm like, yeah, no worries. I ring Dave, he leave him a message. He rings him back, uh, slight change here, mate. After 35 years of having the football, Channel 7's lost the football right, so there's there's no gig here either. So I went from two birds to none, but he ended up getting me a job on a show called Channel 7 Sports World with a bloke called Matty Weiss who we still work with now. Yeah, yeah.
0: That's the end of Part A of the Howie story. Hope you're enjoying it. And for more of the Guru's Journey, flick over to Part B.